friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very exciting episode of the MC Lars podcast. It is Monday, April 29th, 2019. The Nerdcore Spring Tour starts today. We are at the Aquarium in Fargo, North Dakota. For tickets and dates, go to nerdcoretour.com. I'm out with Mega Ran, Schaefer the Dark Lord, and MC Frontalot. We are, let me give you a quick rundown on the dates. May 1st, Minneapolis. May 2nd, Milwaukee. May 3rd, Chicago. May 4th, Pontiac. May 5th, Lakewood, uh, which Lakewood's kind of like Cleveland. May 7th, Rochester. May 8th, Columbus. May 9th, Pittsburgh. May 10th, Nashville. May 11th, Birmingham. Uh, May 13th, Atlanta, Georgia. May 14th, Gainesville, Florida. May 15th, West Palm Beach. May 16th, Orlando. And then... On June 8th, I'm playing a show with Big D and the Kids Table in Boston. And then, check that, check it out. If there weren't enough awesome adventures with the Nerdcore guys, I'm playing on June 15th with Frontalot and Word Burglar in Philadelphia. And then June 29th, I'm playing the band's Warp Tour show in Atlantic City with Bad Religion, Blink-182, all that flavor. You know, it's hard headlining these big festivals. No, I'm playing. I'm I don't know. We're, we're not. We're going to be on some surprising stage. We're not. Head, we're not headlining the uh, <laughs> work tour, but it's going to be tight. Thank you, Kevin Lyman, for inviting me back to play another festival of the Warp Tour on Friday. We dropped 1984 song, and uh, I love that song. My friend Mike Russo played guitar on that song. It's kind of a tribute to Run DMC. Uh, Rich Matthew did the beat. He did the Roger Rabbit EP. He mixed and mastered most of the album. Very incredible. It featured B. Dolan. A lot of you might know B. Dolan as one half of the Epic Beard Men. He tours with Sage Francis. B. Dolan plays Big Brother. And we got a video. The video is awesome. So that is me catching y'all up on what's going on. I am very excited to be playing North Dakota tonight because not only... Am I glad to be back on tour with my Nerdcore brethren? But like I've said, probably you probably heard me say this a lot on the podcast. North Dakota and Delaware are the two states I haven't played shows. And when I I remember when I was in college, I made like a bio for the summer camp I worked at. And I said, one day, Andrew dreams of playing a show in all 50 states. And this was like back in the day when, you know, the idea of touring was that was kind of like a crazy dream, even to play a show outside of California. Right. And so... Please tweet me places I should play in Delaware. Wilmington, for instance. One show, and I will play the show in every state in the union. So, enough of that. Let's talk about this week's incredible guest, Chris Beck. Chris Beck has a CD coming out this Friday. CD. Gosh, that's an antiquated term. I have a CD coming out. He has an album, a release. He actually did a Kickstarter for it. Comes out on vinyl. The single's available digitally. And... um. Chris Peck is a dear friend, a family friend. I'm going to end the podcast with his new single, which is from his album, Ancient Baby. It's called Rock and Roll's Calling. Chris is an interesting guy who, this new project kind of ties into the Grateful Dead tradition of jam kind of music, but that's that's kind of limiting it. It's a, you got to hear it because, you know, some people say like rock music is such a broad topic. Chris Peck is playing a show this Friday, May 3rd, at the Hot Monk Tavern in Novato. It's the CD release show. He has been working on this project for years. His last solo record was 2012. And uh, since then, he's been doing projects with Lone, which he talks about, which is an improv poetry project with his friend Tongo, where he makes some music and Tongo reads his poems. And um, this album's been a long time coming. He pressed vinyl. Um, Chris and I were roommates. Let's talk a little bit about how do I know Chris Peck? Well... Chris Peck is almost like a big brother to me. He's a family friend. Our dads went to college together and they ended up both going to law school. 
both becoming lawyers, li living in the Bay Area. And Chris is like a year or two older than me. So every year we'd go to the same summer camp together. We'd go to their house for Super Bowl parties, New Year's parties, just all the time. And I was always like the little kid who, you know, Chris was nice to. He didn't have to be nice to me. But I remember when I was five, or four or five, when Roger Rabbit came out, he had all these Roger Rabbit toys and he let me play with them during the Super Bowl. And I remember I made, I drew on the, on the paper, this map of the kitchen from the first scene of Roger Rabbit. And I remember he told me it was really cool. When I first started playing guitar, he was super encouraging. And every summer I'd look forward to jamming with him at the summer camp I went to. And I remember playing once, um, <clears throat> playing guitar at his high school graduation party. There was like a band and I remember playing guitar with, with, uh, his friends and and he told me I was getting really good. So that inspired me. Chris really inspired me to follow my musical path because he was like the cool older brother, family friend who always had my back, always said nice things to say. And it's just been nothing but super encouraging of my music. We did a few collabs together. He did an album called The Cry Muscles, Le, Le, Le Chronique. And we did a song called Nature's Mysteries. And then he arranged and wrote the music for Peeing in the Pool, which is on the Donald Trump is Very Bad Morals compilation. And we did a bunch of quick like punk jams with the matches that he composed and directed. So if you go on Spotify, you can hear our collab, Peeing in the Pool. Um, Chris was a groomsman in my wedding. And we were roommates in the North Bay, like Marin County, when I was, he has a spot in Fairfax. When I was finishing the zombie dinosaur, I was living with him. And I'd drive every day across the Golden Gate Bridge to record at the Rondo Brothers studio with my friend DJ. Then I'd come back with demos and Chris and I would play each other our demos. And he was working on this Ancient Baby album, which is crazy because that was like, when was that? 2014, 2014, 2015. And um, we always, it was cool because we'd come home and he had these really nice speakers and we had this Wesley Willis painting up on the wall and we'd sit in his living room and listen to what we did during the day. And um, Chris went through some processes with this record. He tracked a lot of it to tape, and then he had a lot of pe people finishing the mastering and the delivering of it to make it perfect. He has two versions of it. I think he did a lo-fi and a hi-fi version. And um, what I love about Chris is he kind of represents this model of where I feel like indie music is going. So hear me out. So Chris, you know, he plays shows and he does shows internationally and stuff, but he doesn't make his living on the road like a lot of musicians. He teaches guitar lessons when he's home. He produces other music and works with different artists. But his asset is that he's, and his superpower is that he's created a scene for himself and his friends in Fairfax, Nevada, Marin County, that is super rare. I remember when I was hanging out with him, we'd walk into town. Everyone would always be talking to this dude, and he'd know a little something about everyone, something special about their backstory. And Zombie Dinosaur took a few years, and it was nice to have like a friend in the scene who helped me incubate this project who had built this scene. And whenever he plays shows, he'd get lots of people to come out and see him because he has a lot of fans. He's played a few shows with me in San Francisco, and he always brings out the homies. And I just think it's super cool that... like. He would spend years on an album he believes in, seven years. That's dedication, and that's beautiful. So this is my interview with Chris Peck, and he drops some wisdom. He talks about going to school and getting his jazz chops at NYU. He talks about what it was like coming back to California and all sorts of stuff. So a uh, great guy, a great friend. Please check out Chris Peck's stuff, and thank you all for listening. This is my interview with Chris Peck, a.k.a. Peck the Town Crier, a.k.a. One Half Alone, a.k.a. Le Chronique, The Cry Muscles, a.k.a. 
mad names. He's like cool kid, dude. So Chris Peck, his record comes out Friday. And like I said, if you are in the Bay Area, please go see my boy. He's playing a show at the Hot Monk Tavern in Novato Friday, May 3rd. Tickets and info on his site. All right, thanks. Oh, my goodness. I almost forgot to shout out the Patreon supporters. And you know what? This podcast is made possible by the Patreon supporters. We did two songs this month. I'm very last month. I'm very proud of. I did Dragon Blood Part Two, catching everyone up on what happened since Dragon Part Blood Part One, which was on the Zombie Dinosaur LP. Uh, speaking of which, and I did a song about Goosebumps by R.L. Stein. And that's kind of crazy that the mo- when the Goosebumps movie came out, Ashley and I were in Fairfax, and it was the day of my ten year college reunion. I was on tour, and then we went instead of going to the party for all the alums. We went to see Goosebumps that night in Fairfax. And I'll cherish that memory because the theater was empty. It was like the last time I hung out in Fairfax before I left. So that's what's going on on Patreon. Thank you to the new supporters, Matthew, Michael, Melissa. Thank you to the old ones, Stuart, Jonathan, and Andy. And Stuart is aka Two Button Hero. Stuart runs a charity in the UK called Gamer Giving, which uh, people donate games for sick kids in hospitals to play while they're getting better to take their mind off um their illness that's great that's great Stuart. you're the man thank you for supporting the patreon okay here's my interview with peck the town crier ladies and gentlemen I'm here with a man who is basically family to me, basically an older brother, a dude I've known since I was a baby, Chris Peck. Hello, Chris. Hey. Thanks for being on the show today. You're very welcome. We are in the record, your recording studio in the North Bay, where Mm -hmm. you've been here, what, doing tracks for what, five years? Six, did you say? Had this studio for six years. This is a a cool spot. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you find a spot? Um... It's a cool story. Um, this whole complex has been music purposed for since the seventies. Um, and it's kind of storied. Um, and so there's little rooms like this one that's kind of an office and then there's big garages back there. And so even as a teenager, sometimes I would end up here, uh, to do a recording session. Like when I did my college audition recording, it was back there. Um, with one of my teachers and uh then there was in 2012 a period where i didn't have an apartment i was living with my folks and i also didn't have a studio and so i teach guitar you know and all my house calls all my lessons were house calls and i thought before i even find an apartment i should just find a working space there was one afternoon where I was like, I want to run into this guy, Jake, because he's a local sound guy who knows everyone. Mm. And I bet Jake will know where to look. And I had that thought as I was pulling up to this burger restaurant called Phyllis's. In Marin County? San Rafael. Yeah. Kind of like an American graffiti looking yeah. spot in San Rafael. And I had that thought in a, in a moment later, Jake pulled up. And had his window down and parked next to me. What? Yeah. And I was like, hey, I've been hoping to run into you. Um, do you know about any studio spaces? And he was like, oh, um, I just moved out of an office at Joseph Court. And then he gave me like the inside 
uh, deal on it. Like you have to be okay with not having a bathroom. Say that to the <laughs> yeah to the property management. And I got this room for three hundred bucks a month, which in the Bay is a coup. And you still and now I have a bathroom. Oh, <laughs> two six years later, <laughs> just recently. You have run into George Lucas around the North Bay, right? Yeah, Lucas is a pretty local cat. Like he he likes to hang at you know small breakfast restaurants. Uh, and people in general leave him be. Yeah. And that is a good thing in Marin. There's a, a lot of kind of um, luminaries moving around here. Um, and some are pretty recognizable. Yeah. Um, and others, there's a lot of cult heroes around too who I've had a chance to talk with. Or even as a kid playing music in Marin, it seemed like the webbing between the adult music scene and the kid music scene was really strong here. Um, so I remember meeting Sammy Hagar when I was 16 oh, yeah. and him watching my band rehearse or meeting Mickey Hart shortly after, or, you know, sometimes the dads at my school were rock stars. Like this guy, Tom Johnston from the Doobie brothers. He rehearsed with us every week uh, for like 10 weeks and then played a show with us. That's awesome. You and I were roommates in Fairfax, and near us, there was the fabled field where Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead played their baseball game. That's right. right. Yeah. Yep. That's <laughs> awesome. Yep. yep. The Fairfax baseball field. The history of, and like the Grateful Dead up here, and just you've, I always seen you, you tap into that lineage because yeah. it's a place where people, it's, it's near. It's like Long Island, maybe in the way it's near a metropolitan area, San Francisco. Yeah, but it's removed where people get to do their own thing, mm -hmm. and that's why I like coming to see your studio here because it's peaceful, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've heard people compare Marin to Long Island. Yeah, a lot. The difference being that Long Island is a terminus, and the Marin goes mm -hmm. up to you know my favorite place right. in the world is. Right. Is, is the Trinity Alps in Eureka and Humboldt County. And mm -hmm. I remember I always loved coming back from the studio when I was living with you, doing Zombie Dinosaur with DJ, and I'd have the demos and I'd play you the mixes. But I always loved the sign where you, I'd go left to where we were living and then you go right and it says Eureka. And I was like, uh -huh, yeah. I felt like there was this gold in this area. and in the Yeah, music. that's north on our compass. Yeah. You know, instead of the N, it says Eureka. Yeah. Yeah. And it's far, but you are in the redwoods up here, you know, and you are in, mm -hmm. it's nowhere like it in the world. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you see that beauty in Marin and I, I'm really glad you lived with me here for a while and kind of got a taste um, because I think in the Bay Area, Marin is maligned. As um, what, being wealthy and removed? Yeah, that it's this, um, you know, gated kingdom where just, awful one percenters will honk at you from their Lexus SUV. And yeah. on a street level, the public space is that way. Mm -hmm. But the woodworks, man, are so full of this funky culture that has stubbornly persisted even as property values went nuts, you know? You've been a haven and a mentor to a lot of young artists here and you've allowed your, you know, where yeah. you, your spot, you've, you know, you hook up friends and you've kind of been... One of those people who has stuck around here after you went to college in New York, right? Yeah. And you lived in Brooklyn for a while after you graduated, right? I did. Good memory. Yeah. Yeah. But I always knew I would come back. Yeah. I never lost that tether to 
Marin, you know, coming back on breaks from school and just finding out what everybody else had been up to in my little bohemian crew yeah. up here. Yeah. You know, early on we had some older musicians, um, you know, some that were just two or three years older than us and then others that were those adults. And now I'm on the other side of that webbing and it's still kind of beautiful and informal, like an actual culture, you know, um, because when I went off to New York, it was music school and studying jazz. And that was like a simulacrum of music culture. Uh-huh. You know, like this concentration of jazzers in this building. And they're supposed to, you know, give you the the bebop lore. Yeah. Um, but there's this funny shark pit pressure to it. Um, just like the movie Whiplash, if you've seen that. Yeah. You know, my times in New York, I went with, on radio trips and you were at NYU. And you we hung out and you showed me around. And it was like... Having yeah. a family friend as a guide. I remember yeah. we went to see King Missile. Yeah. And you, you were on a mission, dude. <laughs> I was on a mission. Even then. To find the, you know, CMJ was cool because it was like tapping into this place where everything was coming together in a, in a geographic way where the boundaries weren't so broken down with the culture as they are now. So you'd go to a physical destination. Mm. And your life, you've always inspired me because you go to places like, Texas and places around the world. In France, you go for festivals and yeah, play yeah. where you connect to the human side of the music business and hmm. you have these relationships with these people who are like doing it purely for the art. Hmm. I see you and your your network is like the new the beat generation, huh. you know? And wow. people who are prolific and kind and where what they focus on is their chops and their passion uh, for music. Wow. And I think that gets forgotten, I think, in the, with a lot of, I don't know. Hmm, that's a really cool reflection, bro. Yeah. Um, it feels more nourishing to go places and have in-person experiences. And um, I've tried to conceive of it as a business mm -hmm. and be logical about what I'm doing when I travel, but I'm just not that good at that. <laughs> And I am good at meeting people and caring about their stories and remembering their stories, you know. I remember, you know, we went to summer camp together up at Lake Tahoe and every year I'd bring my guitar and getting that chance to, ooh, maybe I'll get to jam with Chris, you know, like, mm. you know, my early MCLR stuff was silly and funny and, you know, some of the rarest stuff. And you were mm. the one person in my life who I looked up to who kind of gave me this wink, like what you're doing is cool musically and it's funny, but it's different. And I wanted to thank you for that publicly. You're very welcome. <laughs> I remember the CDR uh, where it was a Lars Horace album. And I think like baked on the CD was a photo of you wearing like a motorcycle helmet. Yeah. And having this like manic smile in this motorcycle helmet. <laughs> um, and I remember some of the songs like going for your ear. There's nothing here to fear. And being like, whoa. I feel like I would have liked to have written that line. <laughs> that was how I felt when I first heard your stuff was like, we're having this, we're mining the same vein of ore or yeah. something. And it's crazy now at 38 and 35. Yeah. No, no, I'm 36. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy now at this age, seeing how much parallel we have. Yeah like our families knowing each other. It's multi-generational friendship. Our parents, our dads were, uh, they lived in the same house in college. Yeah. And both became lawyers. 
roomies two generations of roomies <laughs> and they they would we'd always have this go to the summer camp every summer and they uh you know i think our our dads us becoming close friends and spending time together i think was like a cool vision of their legacy for them yeah that their sons you know were collaborators and yeah that's special to me me too yeah yeah, it's multi-generational. <laughs> multi-generational. At this yeah. point. And then by our own volition, the thing that makes it really trippy is that we both went into music. Yeah. And artistically, we're so kindred. Uh, yeah. And then the way it's manifested in our paths looks different. Definitely. I think that's interesting. Like we have the same core drive or something, same spark, but different like skill set in the world or something. Yeah, your skill set is your musicality your ability to play like every instrument and your patience and your encyclopedic knowledge of mm. vinyl and media and the fact that you know things you would turn me on to as i remember when uh i came to visit you in new york when i was like 16 we were in your dorm and you'd gone to tower records and you had bought one of the eric b and rakim's paid in full whoa and you were like yo i had no idea what that was i didn't realize mm. that rap had much of a history before like mc hammer Hmm. And you're like, yeah, this is cool. Check this out. And hmm. you playing that for me in mystical, you know, he's, he's been problematic, but like that in unpredictable yeah. record, you, yeah. you really rode hard on that. And I remember I bought the, the warehouse and God, that, that album, that album is just, that is a cult classic. Yeah. That's one of the best records of the nineties. Definitely a real sleeper because the costume that it wears is, doesn't make it seem like a masterpiece. It sounds like nightmare video game, like, <laughs> you know, machine gun music. But then you listen to it and it's like, oh my gosh, so much craft in the beats. Yeah. Um, and in the marriage of the beats to mystical. And like his, he's not exactly a rapper. He's like a master yeah. musician. Well, he hadn't come bit hard with the James Brown rap mashup, which was his platinum. Right. It was like- Those songs, yeah. Yeah, seeing the, yeah. Seeing the DNA of- like Dre doing stuff pre Eminem and pre NWA, this record that you were like, you need to check this out or the meters, you know, oh, wow. stuff. Wow. And then jazz. Like hmm. I always, you know, when I write my songs and my chords, my best stuff is when I do charts and think of the modes and scales. And you really were someone who translated that the DNA of this stuff is an infinitely inspiring adventure hmm. and to look at people like Jakob Astorius and Miles you know I was a jazz guitarist but you were like some of these horn players are are special too Coltrane right, right. the stuff that was of our previous generation having mm -hmm. your stamp of approval on things yeah gave it this importance to me and I remember I had a list I never told you this but in my closet I had a list of CDs you recommended and I'd save my allowance money and stuff when I was like <sighs> 15 or whatever to try to check them all off so I could talk to you about them that's really deep bro <laughs> That's yeah, really moving. And I totally remember the Eric B and Rakim yeah. moment uh, because there was a Virgin Megastore there on Union Square. Right, right, right. Um, are there any more Virgin Megastores? I think they're gone. I wow. remember that one. It's now it's now a, a Whole Foods maybe. No, it's a Best Buy. Right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Beneath the um, the clock. Yeah. The big digital clock on Union Square. It was yeah. that building. Yeah, that's tight. <laughs> Do you miss New York sometimes as a Northern California-based guy now? I feel like I gained New York by leaving it. And now when I go back there, I'm not worrying about laundry and buying a lamp and all the stuff that's kind of complex in New York, paying rent 
you know, getting where you need to go every day. It, now I'll go there for 10 days and I'm just like free floating and visiting people and not experiencing the intense grind of affording that place. I love just walking. You know, this past, after my tour, I had a few, some time and I would take the walk from Brooklyn up to Central Park and and back across the Williamsburg Bridge, which is like 20 miles, hmm. feeling comforted by the skyscrapers and knowing, I say that because I know that like no matter what, being able to go back, you can always get lost and explore New York. And it is special when you're- You're like Walt Whitman. Yeah, right, right. Feeling it under your feet. Or Melville too did that. He would walk for like 12 hours all around New York. And that's what he taught. He starts Moby Dick with this image of this man wandering Manhattan. He says, when Manhattan gets- the best you and you want to start knocking people's hats off hmm. then you want to go search for the white whale and that makes me want to, that makes me think of touring right wow that made me feel like that was the beginning of a rhyme <laughs> that line you quoted i should use i've been thinking of doing a melville ep or album you have put out a really cool diverse hmm. growing catalog of hmm. pectatown crier hmm. lone now your chris peck project like You've got great videos. You put so much thought and love into everything. And it's been a joy seeing Ancient Baby develop in these past few years. And I cannot Thanks, wait bro. to get it. Yeah. Yeah. You've been one of the real cheerleaders throughout this epic journey because it kind of started six years ago. It's a departure because I remember, you know, we'd listen, we'd have a thing where we'd listen to each other's demos and you would play the, uh, the songs and you know some of your older stuff is hip hop and jazz and funk and it's funny and dope. Mm -hmm. These songs are maybe you could speak on them more than I, but I, they're they're, they're kind of American. Yeah, tell kinda, me more. Kind of rootsy and simple rock songs. Yeah, they're rock tunes and yeah. they're almost all in the key of E. I didn't realize that. Which means there's a lot of open strings ringing for the whole album. Yeah, it means it's easy to play those songs. Um, but bro, just like winding back a minute um it's really sacred that we've heard each other's records all the way through this chronology because yeah. a lot of my good friends here in the bay or just in my life they know like one chapter of my life um like i love my tribe out in fairfax where i live most of the time yeah but they just know present day me um because i i haven't like given any of them the link to my band camp <laughs> and been like, here's everything. Interesting. So that's why you're releasing it, not as Peck the Town Crier, but as Chris Peck to kind of own to that new chapter? Or? I guess so. I puzzled yeah. about the name. Yeah, that's interesting. And then you were, for a moment, you were thinking of calling it the band Ancient Baby, right? And make it yeah. self-titled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the name Ancient Baby is definitely a mission statement. And I'm using it as the album title. But when the band plays live, we just call it Ancient Baby. Um, I think the band deserves to be called that. Right, okay. So there's a bit of a branding conundrum. But you know what's something, Chris, is that... Remember remember Cuckoo Kangaroo? When yeah. They, Brian, I like them. They're dope. Yeah. And they have... I, Brian, I talk to a lot about branding stuff and shout out to him. And, and he They're smart. They're great with the brand and like they're very prolific. But he said to me... I was starting this new YouTube series where I was like reviewing books and doing like Cliff Notes versions of them. Huh. And he was like, I was like obsessing what I should call it. And, and Brian was like, just make it and release it. And your trail of 
what you do will define itself. People will put the pieces together and hmm. the, the semantics of what you call things doesn't really matter. And I think your success is a testament to that because you have sweet. different projects, you know? Hmm. That's sweet. Yeah. Um, by contrast, I think you hanging on to the name MC Lars for a long time is a great yoke to your whole adventure. Uh, and actually, I remember um, going into these interiors of our past. Um, you lent me a cool textbook from your college years that yeah. was about the music business. Yeah, Rockin' Out, which Professor, out. Professor Mark Applebaum to the music history class. Yeah. And go ahead. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Yeah. And it had this cool splashy font on the cover. Yeah. Um, and it was like a soft cover textbook about music. Yeah. I think. And it was lit up with your liner notes all over it or marginalia. I went hard on the marginalia. Yeah. And I could yeah. like see your inspiration exploding as a 20 year old or something. Yeah. In that class. And there's one part in the margins where you're like, I'll be called um, MC Lars Horace. It'll be post-punk laptop rap. Uh, it's crazy. It was like a- Really? You must have been sitting in class and been like, pow, light bulb goes off. This is my mission statement. And what's pretty interesting is that you've actually stuck to that mission statement. That's crazy. You I've know? been fortunate, you know, and I think that my link with England has been the biggest door opener for that. But I think that- Chris, mm. it's funny you remember that because I remember that we were learning about, you and I talk about this, and this is a very constant theme on the uh, this podcast, uh, the idea of circumlocution, right? Mm. Which is the way of speaking around and saying things in a mm. surprising way. Mm. So the breakbeat is an example of that. Taking mm. your parents' mm. records and making it something new where the beat never stops. Mm. And I remember okay. writing, you know what I'm saying? like Or like the scratch where okay. it's you, you use something else from the past and say something new with it. And I remember okay. it was a chapter on punk as a way to break down barriers. And, and I was thinking about, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, what is my thematic connection to these things that work? Because Hendrix playing the mm -hmm. Star Spangled Banner distorted at Woodstock is like this take on the American dream and speaking around, right? Mm. And so it's like, mm. I was like, okay, well, what is going to be the thematic approach to, I, I say this because the post-punk thing is like, the theme of punk and then and then using circumlocution to change the aesthetic of it. So mm. that little DNA there of the history. I guess yeah. it's kind of bombastic to be like write myself into the history of rock and roll, but I mm. you know what I mean? That's what college I think is beautiful for. Is that coming wow. of age grandiosity? You know? I hope, you know, some of my young students don't go to college and I hope they still have space to um have big visions like that and start a crazy mission because if you go yeah. to school for four years, I mean, what a privilege, especially yeah. if you don't have to work throughout that time, you've got hours in the day to um, have trial and error and um, think big thoughts about yourself right. and sort of try on big costumes and maybe one of them will come true. Uh, yeah, man, that's profound. And that having big dreams, you know, the, the idea of the laws of attraction, you dream mm -hmm, big, people mm -hmm. come out of the woodwork to mm -hmm. love and support you in theory. And our college experiences were very different because I was kind of in the sheltered suburban Silicon Valley and you were in this ever growing 
monster of New York, this beautiful thing. And you hmm. were there during 9-11, am I wrong? Yeah. So it must have been equally inspiring and terrifying. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was the best and worst of times Yeah, in my life. Um, I just went back there uh, after your wedding. Yeah, Alan thinks you're a groomsman. That's right, baby. In the wedding. That's right. And you had some time to, to explore New York and catch up with your past. Yeah, yeah. The, the trip all started with the wedding and um, wearing that Brooks Brothers boxy suit <laughs> and being going deep in the ritual with you. Yeah. And then I came back to New York and sometimes I live my life by signs and sort of like an intuitive guide. And all summer I was kind of having dreams about New York mm -hmm. and it felt like all signs were pointing there. Like, and I even had this, I was talking to my buddy Naftali, um, the guy who made the underwear video. Yeah. We were taking a walk in Santa Fe. He lives here again now. And I said to him, um, I have to go back to New York. I think I lost something there. And he's a really in tune person. And he said, dude, that's profound. Like you have to go back and find it, you mean? And I said, yeah, I, I think something's there that needs to be uncovered, like a, a memory or a piece of information I left behind or something where I need to re-examine that period of 18 to 23. Um, and I did go back there after the wedding and I, I just kind of followed signs and it seemed like a lot of coincidences were happening yeah um but the biggest of which quick story was that i went to see a friend's band play and there were people in the audience who i had seen play in texas mm. and there were other people in the audience i had seen play in san francisco mm. um and still more familiar faces who used to live in the bay so it was a weird like collision of people at Three's Brewery in Gowanus. Because you all knew the same artists playing or it was just random or maybe- Yeah, different artists on the same bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a band called Ian Davis colon rock band <laughs> that was really good. Yeah. And then the other band was, uh, let's see, a, ca a cat who I like a lot um, named Julian um, who was playing this brilliant stuff. And afterwards I started talking to a guy who I had seen play. He mentions he had gone to the same college as me mm. and we started mentioning names of teachers, mm. you know, because yeah. they're the constant who stay out of school longer. And we're 10 years apart in age. This cat was younger than me. So we have teachers in common. And um, I was saying to you before the mics were on that my my jazz school experience was kind of like the movie Whiplash. Yeah. Um, it's like studying ballet or something. It's like an intense conservatory competitive environment where some teachers want to um, break you down to you know, build you up. Can I do a quick like tangent yeah. on that and we'll yeah. come back? Yeah. Chuck Klosterman has an essay about how whiplash is controversial because it's this idea that millennials aren't feeling that you really have to suffer and, hmm. and that's such a broad thing, suffer mm -hmm. to be great. And it's, mm -hmm. and he ties it in with football as like, it's brutal, but it's like this ancient thing that, people love and there's promise from the pain mm. in whiplash i am sympathetic to the teacher who just wants his students to be great and, and without spoiling the movie like yeah he's a bit of a sadist but guy he, he pushes that kid to like kill it and 
And there's a moment at the end of the movie where he makes eye contact with the kid who takes the reins and takes over in the big band show. And he looks at him like, that's all along what I was looking for. And I wonder if you had those moments, like you're such a fantastic musician. I'm sure it was painful, but, or was it mainly like frustrating and endlessly annoying? God, it was such an interesting time, man. And kind of an unexamined time since then. Like you get banged around when you're 18 to 23 and you're kind of made of rubber and resilient and you just incorporate the hard knocks and maybe come up with an optimistic story for yourself about what happened. And you kind of wrap it up with a bow and keep moving. Um, or you quit, right? Uh huh. That's, that's, you're talking about as a survivor of, and, and a professional musician. Like, yeah, I guess I'm a lifer and I managed to stay on the music path. Uh, even after the first month of my freshman year was disastrous. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Tell me some stories, man. I didn't, here's (laughs) the, uh, the, the callback to that, um, night at, at Gowanus Three's Brewery, um, was that I was talking to this great guitarist, this soulful kid that, um, I'm not remembering names too well today. He plays in this amazing band called the Rad Trads. Highly recommend this band. Okay. They're almost like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band spiritually, but musically they have their own thing going on. So I'm talking to this great guitar player and we start mentioning teachers' names. For some reason, I threw out the name of this teacher who, when I was a freshman, I got placed with like the elite guitar teacher. It's supposed to be an honor to be with this guy. And um, in my second lesson, he did this sort of rehearsed sequence of beating down on me in this lesson. And I wasn't used to it coming from Marin. They're very soft here. You know, teachers, the culture, like they're afraid to use red ink on your essay in Marin. East Coast, East Coast is, yeah, the New Yorkers are to the point. Yeah. What was he And saying? jazz culture in New York is a further reduction of that intensity would it i mean new york is a is a i was gonna say ground zero that's the wrong word it's a genesis <laughs> genesis point for jazz mecca yeah and bebop especially yeah absolutely right? bebop was born in new york city yeah and it's still the the magnet the thunderdome uh that jazz musicians from all over the world move there to see if they've got it um like broadway i guess is a corollary totally yeah totally or maybe hip-hop still yeah. if you're really about the bars like maybe you should live in new york at some point yeah that's i you feel know. you yeah so what did he say? Like you weren't but, rehearsing? Oh my God, the guy was so intense. Um, he I hope just, he hears this, by the way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He just kind of set up some impossible tasks for me to do with a metronome. And when I couldn't do it, he would go, F sharp is not in a, in a B flat seven chord back to the start. He had this robotic voice. And after he just kept doing that for 10 minutes or so, uh, he was like, how are you ever going to make it in this city? You know, your technique's terrible. Your reading is trash. You don't know these chord tones. Um, what are you even listening to? Uh-huh. And I said some bands I like, and uh-huh. he goes, well, uh, those are all just imitations of what I listened to growing up. So I was there when it really happened. And he would just do things like that. Like each question was a setup for a fall. And like the Socratic dialogue where you couldn't be right. Yeah, they were leading questions yeah. for sure. And um, I remember that day really vividly because I had never met a teacher like that who would like um, use negativity on purpose to sort of get some gravity and power in the situation. Um, And at some point I just pushed back and was like, oh, I thought all that matters is if it sounds good. And 
just instantly at that first pushback, just saying something so naive and sophomoric, he stood up and was like, okay, get out of my house and just opened his door. And so you're like doing a private tutorial kind of thing? Yeah, at his house. Yeah, 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 that was where you would go for his lessons. And um, I was like, hey, I'm sorry. Uh, You know, I will do what you're telling me to practice. And I see what you're pointing towards and I need to improve. And he was like, just said nothing and shook his head and opened the door and stood in the doorway. And I tried to reason with him a little more. And then I just like skulked out of there and got on my little BMX bike and was like, fuck that guy, fuck this school, fuck yeah. this city, and just rode home like so shocked. Um, With your ax on your back? Yeah. yeah. And as it turns out, like, you know, different, the head of the program the next day was like, come to my office. And then he got really upset with me. And I tried to be humble and he just kept going. Um, Cause you'd auditioned your chops to get into this program. Yeah. So, so yeah. they knew you were like, a, a great musician so what I, was the what yeah was i think umbrage? they were fine with me being there and yeah. they just a couple teachers had a little inner circle where they would reinforce each other's strategy of being harsh in the beginning right um and kind then of boom i'd be walking around the hallway and like upperclassmen would walk up and say something about how i got fired by this teacher and like rag on me about it and Chris. And it was like, whoa, this teacher is telling his other students about what happened too. Did you end up working with him again? No, I tried. Yeah. And um, his drummer was my drum teacher. Okay. Who also taught from his own private space. I was taking drum lessons and this guy was a sweetheart. Uh-huh. And he had a really deep voice. He was like five foot one, this guy, Tony Moreno. <laughs> and he was like, Chris, I, I think it would be beautiful if uh, you guys could patch it up because he's a really passionate guy and- and then he told me that he was having an audition um, or uh, he was having a rehearsal at his basement studio and that Bruce would be there, this teacher. Yeah. And uh, he, he said, come by, let's do a lesson at noon. And then right when your lesson's ending, he'll be showing up and you can ask him, hey, can we go talk in the hallway? And you can ask him if there's a way to come back. Uh, maybe be in his sight reading class or the guy had some constructive suggestions. Yeah. And then like how to, how to a girl you break up with, how to get back on her radar. Yeah. 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 Something like that. Yeah. 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 How to stay in the circle and not be uh, exiled. And dude comes to the rehearsal and he walks in and goes, there he is. And just walks across the room and starts setting up his stuff. And I said, Hey Bruce, I wondered if we could talk for a minute, maybe in the hallway and he like tensed up his shoulders and just shook his head again. And it was the nonverbal thing again. And that was the end. I don't think I ever saw him again. But what's amazing is that yeah. I got with a new teacher who was on my side. Uh-huh. And there were, whew, I can feel myself getting animated remembering this. Yeah. But it was something that I didn't, spend a lot of energy remembering for years because I had nice teachers after that. And I got out of the jazz program after a year or two. Like I went part-time in my sophomore year and then I just jumped to a part of the school called Gallatin where I could make up my own major. Okay. Um, And then I kept taking music classes. I kept being around the music building and the students were nice to me. What I did was I just kept moving and kind of forgot about that story. But then as I was there at Three's Brewery in Gowanus, 
this kid was like, oh, that's funny. I mentioned that guitar teacher's name and he said, that guy got fired while I was at NYU. I said, that's funny, he fired me. And the kid goes, really? Because he screamed at me to get out of his house while he was holding a whiskey on the rocks in his hand. And this kid tells me that, that in his first or second lesson, this guy poured himself a drink and like did all this kind of stuff that was worse than what he did with me. Like it sounded like 10 years later, he had progressed to a, a worse place and was drinking during lessons. And, and you can't do that. And then he said, actually, and Ian, who we just watched play upstairs, same thing happened with him. He also got fired by the same teacher. So it was profound, dude. I was standing there and I was like, wow. That's what you went back to New York to get. That's kind of what I lost. Oh, dude. Yeah. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah. You had this, you had this this realization it wasn't you. Yeah. And you know, maybe some people did well studying yeah. with him. And I had always come up with a story in the aftermath that, hey, I was 18. I was arrogant. I came from a place where everybody just kind of shined me on and told me I was nothing but golden talent. Uh, and I came to New York and I wasn't used to like direct criticism. Yeah. And that was the story I always told myself is that I learned something about that and made it through that. And I even subscribed to the guy's email list. He's a, a teacher who puts out these teaching emails um, and new method books all the time and stuff. Yeah. Um, and for some reason I was trying to say, oh, I'm, I'm past that now. I can even like benefit from what he's teaching now. Sure. You know, and um, then to find out that he had done that so many times and had gotten worse as the years went on and then had gotten fired. Did you feel um, bad for him? Kind of? Hmm. Like maybe he was like dropped from a label in the in this 80s and- Not anymore. Yeah. I think in my old state of mind, I was kind of like, you know- thinking the guy's just a really serious teacher and kind of taking an empathetic view of the whole thing. But now the way I'm seeing it is kind of like, um, I don't need teachers like that, you know? Sure. It's, it's like, if you, if that's your whole way of approaching people in the first and second lesson, don't be a teacher. Right. You know, if you're not coming with some kind of like love for the craft and love for the student, stay out of the teaching business. Like finding, a, it sounds like he was finding a reason to tell you you suck, to try yeah. to feel like his taste and stuff was better. And you, when you're not touring and recording, you teach guitar a lot, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that experience shaped the kind of teacher I am. And, you know, being in a culture of where the head of the program and the upperclassmen in the program, and it was almost all male. There was like one or two women in the whole jazz program. And there yeah. was just this kind of funny, tweaked culture there. And so to go back there, and find out that new piece of information gave me a new view of it. And a lot of other great things happened on that trip. And um, when I was in the car headed to the airport, I just kind of right before getting to Newark Airport, looked at my email in my phone. And the most recent email was that guy's teaching email. Right. And I just scrolled to the bottom and hit unsubscribe, yeah. got out of the car and flew home. What crazy timing. Yeah. Yeah. It was totally cosmic. Dude. That's, that's a wild story, man. It was wild. And it made me feel different about how I teach. Like maybe that experience made me a very uh, soft, supportive teacher since then. Um, and it made me think maybe there's a way coming home and starting in the fall, all my students coming back. Maybe there's a way that I can put more rigor into how I teach with a supportive environment in a mm -hmm. safe way uh, because I think I've been so in reaction to how that guy was and how New York was for me 
I've been so kind of um, Marin. Like if a kid weren't didn't practice. It's always fine yeah. if you don't practice. Yeah, yeah. You know? And like when you said in your closet, you wrote down the CD recommendations yeah. and you saved your allowance. I was yeah. thinking in my head, man, that's what I hope my students will do. Right. I hope they'll buy music or like remember the name of an artist that they love. Yeah. And, uh, and get nerdy on it. Like find out where they're from and what band they were in before. Yeah. And go spelunking like we would. Yeah. You know? Yeah, these treasures you find deep in, in the waters of these caves. That's what I'm trying to engender with my students, you know, is just be totally passionate and ferocious and voracious about music. Yeah. Um, as a listener and as a player, um, they feel like the same thing, kind of, like both part of the same investigation. Um, but then coming back, I was like, all right, let me start coming up with like a method book. And that's something I'm working on now where it, instead of the lessons being totally freeform like I've done for the last 20 years, um, I want to collect all of that 20 years of what worked and what didn't into like a short book, like 35 pages, yeah, 40 pages of exercises and some philosophy about being a musician, about the Jedi path. Chris, let's talk about, you know, as we wind down, let's talk about Loan. This yeah, is a really sure. cool project yeah. you and your friend have been doing. Yeah. Um, loans, uh, a poetry band with my friend Tongo Eisen Martin, who I went to high school with and I met him when I was 14. And we uh, have played a lot of shows as a duo in the last five, six years, just improvising, playing guitar behind his poetry. Um, but we're getting ready to release our second record. And it's one of um, kind of two records I'm going to put out this spring. And actually it was recorded in this room, the Lone album. Oh, cool. All the vocals were done in here and all the instrumental stuff. Um, and basically it's kind of like film scoring or something. Like a lot of times I would just record Tongo's poetry performance acapella. Um, and then I would just listen on the headphones and lay down one instrumental performance all the way through the poem mm. i might listen to his poem and just drum along and then that drumming would become the spine to inform the mood of whatever other instruments became the arrangement and it was a weird blend of composition and improvisation yeah because his words are almost totally nailed down uh from one night to the next he improvises a bit yeah and he jumps between poems improvisationally uh, and definitely uses his emotional inflections to change from night to night. Um, but his poems were kind of the fixed element. And then I would improvise along and then look for sparks in the improvisation that could be turned into like form and feel like, oh, that was a B section. That was a bridge. That was a, a return of the A theme, you know? And so it's a, it's a nine song record and it's kind of lighter than our first record that was a really doomy gnarly album from 2012 almost kind of industrial yeah 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 i was hanging with people who liked that kind of music then yeah. um swans and like um pig robin gristle yeah pig yeah. face if yeah. you know pig face yeah yeah i was checking that stuff out and it was the first uh angry music i had ever made yeah I, I know in, and it was in my life it was a cool departure because it was different and right. you, and I bet it must have been interesting having a friend who was the front man where you're kind of do, doing this sound the Rick Rubin sound collages. right right what are the sound collages like on the new one is it more like mm -hmm. acoustic or um there's tunes that are really pensive and kind of pretty 
mm-hmm. here and there. There's one song um, where um, there's just vocals and tango, for instance, from this woman, uh, Giomara Grace. She just sings two tracks of her throughout the poem. So some of it's very sparse like that. Mm. Um, and then there's other tunes that are back to the anarchy uh, and very blown out, saturated, distorted sounds on some of these tunes. And there's definitely a nod to the kind of evil period of Miles Davis mm. on this record. You know, if you think about... Um, the, like Bitches Brew Bitches era? Brew until Jack Johnson, uh, that album mm. of Miles's. Uh, or like Live Evil or On the Corner, these albums that are like grooving and definitely use some jazz vocabulary, but they're stormy and they're like um, loose and it feels like an emergency letter somebody dashed off really quickly. Mm. Um, Does he do it in one take or do you you go through in Pro Tools and... Almost always one take. Wow. Um, Sometimes he'll say, oh, right there, can you punch me in? And it's almost like a, tape punch in if you've ever been in a tape studio where somebody's like let me just come in and go over the second half of that take Mm. we would do that sometimes but we're really into like the moment and leaving the mistakes in there and even like the creaking of these chairs are all over that record and it it makes it sound like we're on a haunted boat or something that's cool so you were putting that out next year or that's that almost out is that out already? Uh, that'll something? be out in spring 2019 and this one's called blue phase because there's a line in one of the poems where tongo goes this is my blue phase baby blue phase <laughs> that's tight. like that's picasso <laughs> and he is so um versed in history and literature and um political histories yeah um and he's just omnivorous as a reader and a curious person and it shows up in this really digested way in his work. So it's a thrill to collaborate. Yeah. Because you probably learn a lot from him. Yeah. And it's a funny, it's almost like more of a juxtaposition than a collaboration uh-huh. in a way. Uh-huh. It's almost like uh, if somebody you didn't know, if you just got an acapella of somebody you didn't know and you just put sound under it. Yeah. That's kind of how the albums go. Although sometimes it's been the other way around where the music, the first record, the music existed ahead of time and Tongo stood in here with headphones on and got musical and responded to it. And this record's pretty much the other way around. The, uh, the dude from King Missile, John, who I talked yeah, to, he, I did, thought of, yeah. he did a record called Real Men with this guy Kramer, who was the guy who had, he was in a band called Bong Water and he signed Wayne uh-huh, and yeah. and I like Bong Water. And he and he, he did it like you did this the second record. John just read his palms and then Kramer laid the musical collages under it. And I think mm-hmm. you know that's one of John's best records because it's him, you know? Mm-hmm. And to have that freedom both of you where you're doing the music freely and he's just telling his stories and that's like brave and 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 really cool, man. I can't wait to hear it. I like the other stuff a lot. <laughs> Thanks, brother. I can't wait to share it with you. We're trying to figure out the album cover right now. That's tight. Why don't you just do like blue? Just a blue square. Wow. That would be That's tight. it. <laughs> and maybe blue phase in a different shade of blue. That maybe it's tight. indigo and navy or yeah. something. Wow. That could be cool. Hey. Hey. Cool solved. <laughs> when is ancient baby dropping? Or is there uh, the- spring? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's at the vinyl plant right now. I have the test press sitting right there. Oh, shoot. actually, the lacquer test, which oh, is shoot. a pre-test press. Then you, you, are you happy with ha- how the mastering and everything's come out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we talked about that. That um, I loved how the mixes sounded originally yeah. of the Ancient Baby album, and 
this is you know the rock album we were talking about and it, yeah it took me about six years to make this one because i went to several different studios and cut several different versions of a lot of these tunes um including a version that was made entirely in here yeah um and that's the one that the band learned the songs from oh wow so when we play live it kind of sounds like this homemade uh charming version and then after i did a kickstarter kind of inspired by watching your <laughs> kickstarters that's i, I kind of always follow your moves in that way like i I feel like I need to copy you now and start a podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah that I did this Kickstarter and went and cut the record to tape, um, two-inch tape with a guy named Ethan Turner at a studio called Owl Mountain. and um, Up in Inverness? Yeah, on yeah. top of a mountain in Inverness yeah. with a, maybe one of the most stunning views I've ever seen. There's um, great videos of you playing there like playing drums that's right are they it's yeah. on your youtube channel or yeah. yeah yeah there's Those a song called you know what i'll never know that's up there that's like all studio footage that's, uh, that's a taste of how this record will sound and yeah all the graphic design's done the vinyl's gonna come back and then hopefully we'll have a release party i want to do it at terrapin crossroads here phil lesh's spot um, oh cool because the band has begun to sound more and more kin to uh the grateful dead uh way of putting on a show um no you should do this is i just had an idea this might be hit dope. me i love S your ideas since you're since you're multifaceted you should have the loan album come out the same day and have you, and open with loan on that show and do them both because it'd be like this super you know yeah it's been a few years like that would be awesome if i had two projects that were both coming out in the spring i would put mm -hmm. them out on the same day and wow. combine them in one show I never would have thought of that. That would be awesome. That's have a, a great idea. And then at the merch booth, just have them both there. Or yeah. One CD and, wow. Because you're, you're an eclectic guy, man. And as a teacher and as wow. a writer. And yeah, I just, I'm always excited by your output. And I'm also always excited just to hang out with you. I know you have students you're teaching today and it was cool. You squeezed this in. I appreciate it. Dude, you did a great job leading us through and landing us smoothly here. I can tell you've been interviewing a lot of people and I, I, it's no surprise that you're great at interviewing. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Well, I'm glad we're friends. Me too, brother. Yeah. yeah. What's, what, what is it? Peckthetowncrier.com or where do you want to send people? Sure. Yeah. That's the mothership. Yeah. Um, I'm working on ancientbaby.com or ancientbabyband or blah, blah. But peckthetowncrier.com is the place that kind of aggregates everything I do. And you're on Twitter, right? Is it yeah. Also, peckthetowncrier yeah. or Instagram, peckthetowncrier. That's cool. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, thank you very much. Much love, Andrew. Peace. What can I do when rock and roll's calling rock and roll? Let it ring on through. Let it ring on through to the machine. ID says rock and roll's calling for me Why does it always gotta be me? Why don't she ever let me be? Oh, rock and roll's calling for me
could it be? But rock and roll calling for me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Peck the Town Crier. That's his new single, Rock and Roll's Calling from Ancient Baby, which comes out this Friday, the long-awaited album. Thank you, Chris. Great to see you, man. So next week, I have another very special friend, my friend Tim Thompson. So Tim and I found each other when we were 10 years old. We were in fifth grade together. We both did not like the strict Catholic school we went to. We both were huge fans of Weird Al. And we both love being silly and crazy. And we made some crazy videos together. Tim was in my first band, Amphoteric, lead singer of Amphoteric. He's directed a lot of my best music videos. And he went on to direct videos for who else? Real Big Fish, Weird Al Yankovic, freaking me. <laughs> no, that, yeah, right. All these amazing artists. And uh, Tim is prolific as heck. And he's amazing. So that's, this is my interview with Tim. We talk about the early years. It's a really funny we laugh, we cry. It's amazing. We I, I don't think I've cried laughed so hard. I've cried as much as I did on a podcast. We talk about the review the review of the Lint song that was inappropriate. Um anyway, Tim and I were roommates. So it's kind of cool. I interview my Northern California roommate and then my Southern California roommate on the MC Lars podcast. Thank you all for listening. Please come see our tour, nerdcoretour.com and uh I appreciate you all. All right. Have a good week and see you next Monday. Thanks, guys.